If you will take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew's Gospel chapter 15. I'm going to do something in just a moment. Don't think this strange, okay? I'm not sure who is in the nursery today. We have a couple more here today than gathered earlier this morning in Tubzia to worship. Uh, it was 29 who gathered uh, there in a remote village outside of Nagbo. And uh, Ishmael, being faithful to his call, uh, traveled there on Friday evening and talked, uh, spent the night there, prayed through the night, um, returned back to his home in the Lergu on Saturday, went back today, and there were 29 who gathered there uh, to worship. Uh, we'll try to get some pictures posted up for you of the, uh, those that were represented from those two villages. Um, we're encouraged by that. Uh, I'm encouraged by those of us who are here. I was only counting the numbers not to compare, but to be reminded that there are brothers and sisters in Christ like us who are gathering in places uh, very dissimilar from this, uh, but who uh, have centered around and focused their attention around uh, the worship of God and the preaching and teaching of God's Word uh, and I'm grateful for it. And be reminded, and this is not for any of us to take any credit, but be reminded that two weeks ago, that was not taking place. Two weeks ago, that wasn't taking place. Uh, today, that is taking place. Uh, and, and by God's grace, and I believe that it will, there's, it will continue. Uh, and that number will grow as this number will grow as well. I'm still somewhat amused and really perplexed when I drive by churches where signs and banners announce the times for traditional and contemporary services. You see any of those now? Used to see it a lot, but I still see it today. Uh, certainly, both of these words can be defined. But I really do wonder with all the changes that have occurred in the last 50 years, if either of those words really communicate anything meaningful or objective when posted on a church sign with regards to a particular style of worship. And then that word worship confounds the attempted communication even more. Because the church worshiping is the church heralding the righteousness, holiness, authority, beauty, majesty, wonder, glory, goodness, justice, mercy, grace, and grandeur of God. So how would one find any real value in something that did not objectively define something so meaningful as worship? Worship of the one and only objective truth 
of all the universe. How can anyone find any value of even selecting from a list of preferences? Isn't the worship of God and the honoring of God more significant, more awe-inspiring, more self-abasing than that? How could any real worship occur with self at the center of the picture? Think with me for a moment. Shouldn't worship be both traditional and contemporary? Shouldn't we as worshipers hold on to those things that have always and will forever be true about the one whom we worship? And shouldn't that worship translate into the present with expressions full of zeal and fervor and gladness and joy and conviction in language that is understandable? And shouldn't that be able to be done in any culture, in any time, any place, and in any moment where the worshiper or worshipers gather with hearts full of longing and adoration of the one and only eternal, holy, and life-giving God? Unless I'm misunderstood by those who are here or those who may hear this, I'm not being overly critical of those who post such signs. What about the churches who have already made a determination regarding a preference? Now, none of us are able to escape the responsibility associated with evaluating our hearts as it relates to these issues and their broader implications. And that is where we begin today where we begin to discover what Jesus himself said as he encountered the scribes and Pharisees as is recorded in the 15th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Let's look at that together. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when, you heard, when, when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall 
into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Before we give consideration to the text we just read, I want to point us ahead to a text that we'll consider next week, and you'll see the point. But in chapter 16, in verse 13, we see, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now I want you to pay attention to their response. And we can only assume that this is their honest response. In other words, Matthew is recording what was said. He was there. He was present. He heard the question. I imagine that they gathered and they gave consideration. What are we hearing on the street? And what they were hearing on the street is that some say that you are John the Baptist. We already saw that last week because that's exactly what Herod thought. That Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. Another say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But from all that they heard, every response had pointed to a prophet. Not one disciple was able to say that someone had said, hey, this Jesus, he may really be the Messiah King. Of all that had been heard and witnessed, not one person other than John the Baptist had pointed to him. This is the, the man on the street had pointed to him and said, I believe that this man Jesus is the sent one from God. And we're going to explore that next week. But I wanted us to lay the framework for it because it serves as a bookend in some regards to what we want to look at today. Now I want you to turn back to chapter 14 and let's look at the last thing that we heard last week. In chapter 14, in verse 33, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. This is after Jesus walks on the water. This is after Peter steps out on the water and walks for a while and then begins to sink and and cries out to Jesus to save him. This is after Jesus has taken him and they are in the boat. This is after all of this. This is the final word at the end of that narrative. And those in the boat worshipped him. Saying, truly you are the Son of God. The Holy Spirit through Matthew wasn't pointing to something that was incorrect or faulty. He wasn't saying they are confused. No, he is saying that they have it right. They are not wrong. Now there's much they don't know. And there's much that we will continue to see that they don't know and they don't get. 
But in that moment, at that time, they clearly recognized that he was the Son of God. There was a lot they didn't know, but they knew that at that moment. God was granting them knowledge of the one that would save them and the one who would save all who would believe in him. And I was working through that this week, and I was just reminded, it was interesting that Matthew didn't ex exclude Judas's carrot there either. He was in the boat, and he worshipped him. Now notice that he goes on from there, and he came to the land of Genezareth. So look in verse 34 of chapter 14, and that will help set the stage for what's getting ready to happen. And when they had crossed over, in other words, when... Uh, after they had worshipped and their voyage had ended, they came to the land of Genezareth. And land is kind of the plain along the, uh, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of northwestern shore. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Now listen to this statement. And as many as touched it were made well. It's phenomenal. The point is, is that Jesus' ministry is still primarily focused in the north, which brings us to verse 1 of chapter 15. There are Pharisees and scribes who are coming from Jerusalem from the south. Matthew tells us that Jesus' popularity is growing. Don't miss this. Many people are witnessing his great power. Matthew makes a point to mention, as many as touched his garment were made well. He's not some sideshow. This isn't some circus that's going on. No, this is the God-man, the Son of God, displaying the power of God, displaying the compassion of God displaying the grace and mercy of God. And it is being spread broad. And no, they don't know who He is yet. They don't get it yet. They're not confessing Christ yet. They haven't believed yet. But the Lord in His kindness is showing Himself to be the only one who heals. And thus is pointing to the fact, the one that holds life in his hand the only one that can save the people from their sins they can't see it yet but he's there the kingdom of heaven is at hand now with that as the framework what would we expect from the religiously pure from those who seek to model the keeping of the law for the glory of God or for someone's glory we would expect them to be curious about this kind of work, and they are. They come all the way from Jerusalem. Jesus is doing His work in the north. Word is getting down to the south, and His ministry is primarily in the north, there in Galilee. And these Pharisees and scribes come from Jerusalem even. We're not talking about scribes and Pharisees that might be scattered around through Galilee, that might live in some village there. We're not talking about a rabbi that teaches in a synagogue in Capernaum. We're talking about a delegation of those from Jerusalem, from the very heart and center of who they were as a people, from their capital, here coming to him to investigate what they are hearing about. 
Matthew doesn't say this, but it's obvious with the positioning of these accounts that he intends his audience to know that there is a lot of interest in Jesus. A lot of interest in Jesus. There's a lot of energy around him and circling around him. He's not just moving around unnoticed. This king doesn't do that. He doesn't do that today. People are not seeing him. They are not recognizing him. But God does not move around silently and unnoticed. No, Jesus was moving around and he was drawing attention. And he was being followed everywhere he went. So when these two different groups of religious hierarchies show up, it means something. It may be helpful to understand a little bit about these two groups. Uh, they didn't always run together. We hear Pharisees and scribes, scribes and Pharisees. They were two different groups of people. The Pharisees were the holiest sect. They were the group of religious separatists that grew out of the movement to purify the temple and to establish the law and the keeping of the law and their understanding of what it meant to keep the law uh, became a very strict observance. In other words, there was the Torah as it was given and then there was what they said the Torah meant and they held on to both of those and they sought in every way to model that. They were the, the legalists of the day and, and they were really good at it. They were really good at it. In fact, they were seen and understood as being the best of the best. They were not looked at and looked upon negatively by most of the people. In fact, for most of the people, they were looking to the Pharisees as the example of what they should be, but they were not. They sought ways to carry out the law in every detail in life. In fact, if the law required one offering, they would give four or five or six or seven. And in the process, these ways to adhere to the law, which started as traditions, were in some ways codified, which is how all these rules that the Pharisees came up with came to be written uh, and came to be held on to. It's been said of them that the schools of Pharisees and rabbis were and are holy because their men achieved sainthood through the study of Torah and the imitation of the conduct of the masters. In doing so, they conformed to the heavenly paradigm, the Torah believed to have been created by God in His image, revealed at Sinai and hounded down to their own teachers. If the masters and disciples obeyed the divine teaching of Moses, they said, our rabbi, Moses, our rabbi, then their society, the school, replicates on earth this heavenly academy and heavenly model just as the disciple incarnates the heavenly model of Moses, our rabbi. goes on to say that they held on to these beliefs and actually uh, seemed and were recognized as embodying what God intended in the law. We see from our text in just a moment that that was not exactly the way Christ saw them and understood them. But who could argue with the person who saw such value uh, in the law of God and sought to keep it in the strictest sense? But right? 
I mean, in, in good church attendance and regular church attendance and some of the things that we have held on to and we have uh, codified, and, and again, I'm not saying that that is not in Scripture, but we have codified it in a different way uh, to, to somehow establish some term of righteousness in the course of our lives and other things as well. And the scribes were just that. They were scribes in ancient Israel. Uh, they were the lawyers, Brian. Uh, they were the men who studied the law. They copied the law. When laws needed to be written, they wrote the law. They protected the law. They defended the law. Um, that was their job. And they did what? Our Supreme Court does what? It in interprets the law. And then what a judge does, to some degree, interprets the intent of the law. Well, that's what they did. And they sought to do it very well. The problem is, is that their interpretation of the law began to nullify the very intent of the law. And those are the two groups. They join forces. Uh, my enemy's enemy uh, is my friend at, at the moment. Anyway, uh, we recognize here in this text that something happens. They encounter Jesus. They come to uh, investigate Him and to find out about Him. And they come from Jerusalem. Uh, but notice what they say in verse 2. They begin with an immediate... Criticism. They're calling into question his uh, rabbinical authority. They're calling into question his leadership. Uh, and they don't do it by coming and saying, you are not doing this or that. They are looking at his disciples and they are using the actions of his disciples in a way to negate his authority and to negate the things that uh, he is about and what he is teaching. He said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands uh, when they eat. They bring into question the teaching and leadership, pointing to the disciples' lack of observance of the ceremonial cleansing, which was in fact grounded in the instructions that God gave the priest regarding their own personal cleansing process before the priest carried out their duties. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, we hear the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Now listen at the seriousness of this. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And the Pharisees had sought to embody this and had grabbed it if this was good enough for the priest and it had to be good enough for them. And so that meant that they were constantly going through this ceremonial washing and cleansing. And so it 
became kind of extrapolated into the washing of hands even before the meal was taken. Granted, uh, washing uh, does have hygienic value. We know that. But their criticism of Jesus had absolutely nothing to do with that. Their criticism of Jesus was that he and his disciples were not upholding the tradition of the elders. What would you expect Jesus' response to be? If they had asked that question, ultimately, what would we have expected him? We would have expected him to go back to that very tradition and begin to try to deal with that tradition. But notice that he doesn't. He answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God? He's not being slick. He's not being, he's not being cute. He's not being funny here at all with them. He is simply pointing them to what had taken place in their life. They had placed their tradition above the law of God. And in doing so, they had established traditions that nullified in their own lives the authority of God and His law and His word. He points them back to one of their other traditions. We can read about that tradition. But the law that as is at stake here is honoring your father and your mother. In short, here's what happens. Their responsibility to take care of mom and dad. In an attempt, or maybe not even intended at that time, they had set aside offerings, if you will, that were held in trust for God, where they held on to these things even at the expense of the care of their parents. And in that they had not honored and were not honoring their parents. Was God serious about His law when He said, honor your father and your mother? Jesus was saying, absolutely. And that there was nothing that they could do or should do that would justify any breaking of that law. Then he does something else. Notice what he does. He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. Now I want you to make this connection here. He made void the Word of God. And when they've made void the Word of God, He points to them and says, You hypocrites. And then He points to Isaiah. Points to Isaiah. And what does He say? He points to Isaiah and He said, This people honors Me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. What's at stake here? Well, Jesus' point, the Holy Spirit's point, is that worship is what is at stake here. Worship is what is at stake. He lays it out for them. What does He say? He said, you have honored me with your lips. Now, 
catch this for just a minute. If he had stopped there and that was all that we had heard, all that he had to say, we would think, well, everything's okay. They have done well. They've honored him. They've acknowledged him. They've pointed to him. Maybe they've sung to him. But that isn't where he stops. Look at what else he says. But their heart is far from me. And I want you to catch the connection between the heart, voiding the Word of God, the heart, and their worship. So their problem is not what they're saying. Their problem is the deep-seated issues of their hearts. Their speech doesn't match it. Notice the third thing. Their worship is in vain. In other words, there is no worship. There's no worship. So so that we understand, they had elevated their traditions above the Word of God. In doing so, they had made void the very Word and testimony of God. They had in essence said that God is not sufficient. If His Word is not sufficient, God is not sufficient. We, however, are sufficient. We make our way, we make our law, we keep our law, and we hold our law up to God to offer to Him our law and our keeping before Him. And in that, that is our worship. And Jesus says, no. Your lips may honor. Your heart is not there. And if your heart is not there, then the worship is not there. It is in vain. In other words, there is no worship. And then finally he says, you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. That is, you establish a law unto yourself. And that becomes your message. That becomes your mission. And that becomes the basis of your righteousness. Hear that. So Jesus' point, the Holy Spirit's point, is that Jesus is to be worshipped. How do we know that? Look back to chapter 14 and verse 33. And when He has displayed the glory of God... Before his disciples, those in the boat do what? They worship him by saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What are they saying? They say, truly, you are the Son of God. What has God said? What has the Father said about him? You are the Son of God. You are my Son. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We'll hear that again in just two weeks when we look at the, 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 what takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration. The point is, is that the disciples in their brief moment of understanding pointed there and said, you are who God says you are. And the Pharisees and scribes have said, God, you are not who you say you are. Your word is void and without power and without sufficiency. How do we do that in our lives? Well, certainly at times by placing our traditions above the Word of God, even as to what it means to believe, as to what it means to worship. 
why did I begin where I began a while ago? I thought it was foolishness 40 years ago, this thing of worship wars. There were no worship wars. The hearts of men and women were not focused toward God. And as they stand today, they still are not if that is the issue. Their hearts were not engaged seeking the glory of God. Their minds, their lives, their traditions, the things that they held on to that they placed above the value of the worth of God was what was so critical. You see what Jesus said? He said, your lips honor me, but your hearts do not. At the heart of worship is our heart. Our very heart. The Holy Spirit is pointing that Jesus is to be worshipped. Everything in Matthew is pointing to that fact. Everything in Scripture is pointing to that reality. Don't miss this. The men in the boat worshipped Him by saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Paul writing to the Philippians has this to say. If you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? Did you see that he is pointing to the majesty of Jesus where everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth bow and give allegiance and worship to him and his name. So when the disciples are in the boat with all that they don't understand, but they understand and say, you are the son of God, it says They worshipped Him by saying, You are the Son of God. By acknowledging Him in their heart that He is the Son of God. John writes in Revelation chapter 4, and I want to invite you if you will to turn there. I want you to just hear this as it's read. You read and follow along. If there's any question about the intent of Matthew, the intent of the Holy Spirit, and the intent of Jesus in addressing this issue. He is addressing it at the point of tradition, but He is pointing to the absolute reality of what is being missed in the course of worship. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, John writes, And I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven one with one seated on the throne. Now where did we begin this morning? We began this morning and we have continued to look 
and sense the reality of the reign of this supreme king who sits on this throne and rules. And it's this throne that we are seeing here now. Throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They are talking about none other than Christ Jesus Himself. And then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders of the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power 
and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and on under the earth in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And if that wasn't enough, and the elders fell down and worshipped. The worship of Jesus is the point. Don't miss this. And critical to this point is the heart of the man and woman. Back to Matthew. Notice that Jesus went on to teach that the worship originates in the heart. Notice what He said. Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It is what He said proceeds from the heart. What comes from the heart. Worship originates in the heart. The affections and responses of the heart that lead to worship are grounded in the truth of who Christ is. That's the reason that we pointed to next week's text. Don't miss this. We miss Christ and there is no worship. We confuse Him and there is no worship. We make Him something that is not and there is no worship. If we make ourselves something that we are not, there is no worship. If we make our traditions something, they are nothing and we are nothing and there is no worship. And where there is no worship, where there is no worship, there is the heart that is dead. Traditions, laws, ideas detached from the truth of God's Word. Feelings not grounded in the affections of God's glory. Selfish interest. Do not affect the heart and the mind for genuine worship's sake. They deliver Nothing to God but vain worship. That's what he was saying. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, through Him, meaning Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, and catch this, if there's any confusion about what we were saying today, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. 
And in acknowledging His name with our hearts, we are acknowledging the glory of God in Him and through Him. And then Paul writes in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 18. You may want to turn there. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Notice the proclamation of Jesus. The exaltation of His person. The acknowledgement of His name and His glory. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul's talking about being overcome by the person of Christ to the point that even in his body and all that he does, he is embodying the person of Christ in his life and worship. Whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to do what? He says, to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. What spirit is that? The Holy Spirit of God with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightening anything by your opponents. Why? Because the king has defeated those opponents. That's his point. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That has come from the depths of the heart with an understanding of the praise and adoration and the glory of Christ above all else. In verse 13 of chapter 15, we'll conclude here. What is the alternative to worship? Well, we've already said vain worship, which is no worship, which ends where? Not in the presence of the glory of God. Jesus says clearly, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. 
And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. How does this help us today? I hope it helps us to understand that our endeavor here is for the worship of God. The worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be here and your heart may be cold toward Him. Please listen to the warning. Please listen to the warning. We may be here and evaluating our own hearts. Listen well in the course of that. Is your heart today longing for the glory of God above all things? Above health, above wealth, above well-being, above family, above acceptance, above other relationships, above our traditions. above our successes, above dealing with our failures. We begin with the heart and we say, what is that like? And for every one of us, it is either hard and cold toward Him because of our sin, or it is by His grace softened toward Him to grow to love Him and to worship Him and to hold Him and value Him and treasure Him above all else. At the very least, And notice I say the very least. The table points to that. We worship at the table. We come and we see at the table a picture of His broken body and His shed blood. We see His defeat of death. We see in the table the life-giving salvation that comes by way of His sacrifice and obedience even to the point of death. We see at the table the proclamation of the name of Jesus. The name which is above all names. The name which is exalted above all others. We see at the table a place where we bear our hearts and our souls if we have followed Him and trusted in Him and believe Him and love Him. A place where we have abandoned our own self-interest and looked to the sacrifice 
and grabbed a hold of his for his name's sake and his glory and for our own life.